Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, an increase in salaries for public safety personnel is a must for DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. We'll learn what else will come from the county's budget. Also, one year in, we'll review the results and outcomes of the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce's inaugural Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Assessment. And later in the program, from Closer Look's ATL 68 series, we revisit a conversation with Zanona Clayton about this day 54 years ago, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. We're not going to cry. Yolanda said to her mother, Mommy, you know he wouldn't want us to cry. All that's just ahead. But first this, today's the day, day 40 of the legislative session, also known as Signy Die. State lawmakers have until midnight to get some measures passed or not. House Speaker David Roster made it clear there's one item that's a must. Welcome to Signy Die 2022. That was awfully weak. Some of you wanting to stay longer? Hope everybody's ready for a productive day. I um, looked at the calendar over the weekend, and you know what? I saw one bill on there we really need to pass today. One. And that's the state budget. Otherwise, I believe this sta- the sun will rise over the red hills of North Georgia tomorrow and over the coast. In other news, one of the biggest pieces of legislation passed this year by the General Assembly is the Mental Health Parity Act. Governor Brian Kemp is expected to sign the bill into law today at the state capitol. It's a sweeping reform of mental health care and substance disorder services in Georgia. Most importantly, it attempts to make health insurers cover mental health and substance abuse the same as physical health. In other news, Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens gave his first State of the City address today. Dickens said the city would fund the PAD initiative, which we discussed on this program several times. Now, PAD is the the diversion program created to provide an immediate alternative to arresting people who are deemed as committing violations commonly related to mental health needs, addiction, homelessness, or just extreme poverty. Part of my balanced approach to dealing with crime is attacking the root causes of crime. A police response is not always necessary. For people who are dealing with mental illness and other circumstances, we have a non-emergency response. Our policing alternatives and diversion, also known as PAD, and 311 give us another way to deal with people experiencing unique challenges. And our administration is putting $4.5 million towards expanding PAD to get us closer to operating 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Now, we'll have reaction to this commitment from the city tomorrow on Closer Look. Also, over the next decade, billions of dollars in taxpayer money and private capital is expected to be invested in electric vehicles, especially here in Georgia. Health experts say that investment will be money well spent in the long run, as Emil Moffitt reports. The American Lung Association says if every vehicle on the road were electric by 2045, it would save in Atlanta alone nearly 2,000 lives and $20 billion in health care costs. Dr. Stephanie Levinsky-Dezier says pollution from vehicles is a significant cause of asthma attacks in children. Air pollution also contributes to mortality in this country through things like heart disease and cancer and other pulmonary diseases that affect adults as well. It's not clear exactly how many electric vehicles will be on the road over the next two decades, but industry experts are predicting half of all passenger cars sold by 2030 will be zero emission. 
That's in addition to a growing number of school buses and city buses being replaced, too. Emil Moffitt, WABE News. And finally, for the third game in a row, Atlanta United managed to save the day with a last-minute goal. Atlanta beat D.C. United 1-0 Saturday with a header from Marcelino Moreno in the fourth minute of stoppage time. Brooks Lennon made the assist with the corner kick. Now the win earns the five stripes three points, making them tied for second in the Eastern Conference with the New York Red Bulls. Atlanta United will play next. Will play Charlotte on Sunday. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned a while ago, state lawmakers must pass the state budget today. That is likely. In DeKalb County, that task has already been completed. CEO Michael Thurman's FY 2022 budget includes a 6.25% increase in compensation for eligible sworn public safety personnel, as well as pandemic-related items. An increase in DeKalb's police department is a big part of it as well. So join me now with more is DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. Good to have you back, sir. I'm delighted to be with you, Ms. Scott. Thanks for the invitation. What's easier, passing a state budget or a county budget? You've been on the ends of both. You know what they're both like. (laughs) Well, there's more personal responsibility here as the CEO as opposed to a legislator, but, you know, it's always a challenge to get it done. You know, uh, before we go deeper into the county's budget, I want to talk about COVID-19 because according to the State Department of of Health, you all have it, at least for fully vaccinated folks, you're at 58 percent, at least one dose, 64 percent. How do you assess what you all have been able to do since 2020 to now? I'm very proud of the support we received from the Board of Commissioners and our partners who really uh, prioritize getting as many residents uh, vaccinated as possible. Uh, You mentioned that, but also 67% of our employees are vaccinated. So we're very proud of it. Obviously, we have to remain vigilant and encourage people to do the right thing, get the vaccination and protect themselves. Do you feel the county has done all it can at this point in terms of awareness about testing and then getting folks vaccinated? Is there other areas that you still want to tackle here? Absolutely. It's an ongoing process and you have to continue to be vigilant. You know, someone said we, we're through with the back, uh, with the uh, COVID-19, but COVID-19 is not through with us. Mm-hmm. And we have to continue, particularly with younger kids who are now eligible to receive the vaccination. Uh, we're really going to focus on that in over the next three months, encouraging more parents to get their kids vaccinated. Let's move into the budget. One big part of this, this is a $1.2 billion budget for FY 2022, a big part of this. You want to, as you all say, you want to improve retention, recruitment and training for police, fire and other public safety personnel. Uh, Let's begin with first the office retention. So many departments, not just here in DeKalb County or over in Fulton, but everyone is saying retention is a big issue. Then recruitment. How do you feel this will change with what you all are putting towards through through the budget? making the 6.25% pay increase, which was frontline pay. We've been paying that since the beginning of the pandemic. Making that uh, permanent, I think, speaks to uh, our more veteran officers and personnel, public safety, letting them know that you can talk the talk, but sometimes you just got to walk the walk, uh, make the investments and protect our more veteran uh, officers. And then, of course, uh, supporting more aggressive efforts to recruit. You said also you want to increase the starting salaries. I've talked to so many uh, chiefs of police throughout the state, and they all will tell you that, you know, salaries need to be higher. And as we just we we read about recently from Louisville, a former police chief here in Atlanta, Erica Shields put up a billboard saying, hey, 
come here and we'll give you a little bit more better pay. <laughs> Folks are poaching well, yeah. officers. Yeah. Well, I mean, the competition is strong. And hopefully in the next, in the coming weeks, you invite my chief back. We have some very creative, innovative recruitment strategies that we'll be rolling out here in the cab that I think is going to help us increase the number of applications and ultimately the number of people hired. So Chief Ramos will hopefully come visit with you in the near future. And has been on this program several, several times. But also, CEO Thurma, you know, a big part of that is training. Training in terms of how officers respond to certain calls. And you just heard Andre Dickens, Mayor Andre Dickens talk about the PAD initiative, which will be money geared toward, you know, services for folks that, that need that necessarily don't need to be arrested, you know, that might be experiencing some type of uh, mental episode. Do you all have that type of initiative? If so, do you think you need to even ramp it up more? Well, first of all, I was at the state of the city uh, breakfast this morning. Mayor uh, Dickens did a great job uh, with his speech, but we have uh, two uh, units that are staffed by nurses and other personnel. We're going to add two more. That's also included in the budget. Mm -hmm. We recognize that the disproportionate number of calls are not necessarily calls due to criminal activity, but oftentimes people having episodes, emotional, psychological as well. And I, I asked that CEO, Thurman, because as you know, and it'll be a week, next, next week will be a year regarding the shooting death of Matthew Zadok Williams by a DeKalb police officer. We know that the GBI has concluded their investigation. They told WABE months ago that now that is in DeKalb, uh, D District Attorney Sherry Boston's office. Have you been notified of any developments or updates as Williams' families, they, his family continues to wait for answers? What do you know? Well, I, I've not been notified. I shouldn't be. Uh, this is totally within the purview of our district attorney. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the integrity and the experience and understanding of a DA Boston, and we'll wait uh, for she and her office to make the decision. Uh, but we just have to do more to try to prevent situations when people who may be uh, having mental health episodes come in contact with our law enforcement officials and present themselves as a potential danger and unfortunately result in loss of life. Do you feel you have enough in terms of resources for your county? For, for well, whether it's we need to do better. I mm -hmm. mean, you know, nothing's perfect. Uh, we're going to continue to, uh, and we are, with uh, emphasize uh, de-escalation with training. Uh, you know, Miss Billups, who's a great friend of mine, her son, had, that might be someone you might want to interview. She lost a son mm -hmm. who came into a confrontation with our officers. Unfortunately, he lost his life. Uh, I was speaking to her last week for an hour on the phone. She actually comes and talks to our trainees about the tremendous responsibility they have when they engage a person who's having a mental health episode. A mother who lost a son is helping us train our officers uh, to be uh, to have a greater sensitivity to the challenges people with, with uh, mental disabilities are facing. And as you know, Speaker Ralston, someone you know, that has been a priority for him. He got this measure passed. Now, it doesn't fix everything, but as many folks would tell you, it's a small step toward Georgia all, overall being able to handle and offer not just just access, but treatment over in DeKalb County and with your Department of Public Health. You Anything in this budget that will also address that mental health resources overall? Well, it would definitely help our community service board who actually oversees the delivery of state mental health services. Look, uh, I had a brother who suffered from mental illness and families who have family members who are going through uh, uh, episodic episodes or having mental health issues. There's just not that many resources. Mm -hmm. And so uh, not only do I understand, I've lived it uh, for many, many years. My brother who's deceased uh, mm -hmm. uh, found himself uh, challenged emotionally and psychologically, and it's just so heartbreaking. And you're just afraid for them. Uh, you don't want them to hurt other people, and you don't want them to be hurt as well. As you know, and, and it's not a surprise to you, uh, Atlanta now has been deemed, in terms of housing, unaffordable. <laughs> that is not something that the city wants <laughs> to be proud of. I don't know about the, I know a little bit about the housing market over there in DeKalb County, and I know a lot about the housing market here in Atlanta, which is just not good. In terms of affordability and housing in DeKalb County, you all now, because of the, obviously with the pandemic and folks who are struggling 
to meet rent, to meet mortgage? Is there anything in this budget that addresses resources in that area? Well, not in this budget, but I'm proud and we're getting ready to make some news because it hasn't been announced yet. Uh, but we last week received 25 million additional dollars for rental assistance uh, from the state of Georgia. That brings the total to 50 million dollars from the state and about 30 million from the federal government that all goes to people trying to maintain a roof over their head. Is this for renters? This is for solely for renters? It's for renters. But let me tell you what's missing from the affordability piece is the significant role that uh, higher taxes pay, Mm -hmm. particularly around gentrification. Included in the budget is $150 million in tax relief for homeowners uh, here in DeKalb County that will make uh, owning a home much more affordable because of this uh, fourth year of tax relief that we provide. There are areas, pockets of DeKalb County. I just, you know, I've, I've done stories on this. People are saying, look, I love my home, Rose. I, I'm a senior citizen. I want to stay in my home. But the taxes are, as one woman told me, they killing me, Rose. Our exact words, they are killing me. You you all will have more more resources, more relief for folks that fit that, that criteria. Absolutely. We're the only state in Georgia that has a penny sales tax totally dedicated to mitigating uh, tax liability for average loan taxpayers. The total this year will be $150 million. If you own a house in the cab, you will receive a tax credit of significant amount that will almost, if not totally, eliminate your county tax liability. Not the school district, Mm -hmm. not municipal, but county tax liability. And folks know about this? Because sometimes that's a big issue too, CEO Thurman. You Counties and cities have programs, states have programs, and folks say, I didn't even know about that. Are you getting the word out? Well, you have to file, uh, you know, to make sure you're eligible. But if you have a question, call either. We got a great tax commissioner. You can call the tax office, uh, Commissioner Irvin Johnson, or call uh, here to DeKalb County. We have a major tax relief, and we have a tax freeze, uh, assessment freeze in place so that when you have a year like this year, when they said housing values up 25%, the Cap County taxpayers will have some relief that maybe many other counties don't have. Speaking of relief, all this relates to cost of living. You know, we're dealing with the inflation right now. Your budget includes a 4% cost of living adjustment for non-sworn county employees, as you all say, to help mitigate the effects of inflation. The unsung heroes of the pandemic response are the 6,000 employees of DeKalb County, uh, men and women who didn't go home, who did not waver, continued to pick up the sanitation and, and police the streets and answer the calls and do all the things that county government must and should do. Um, just one point, another thing we're doing this weekend for Easter, we'll be distributing 5,000 boxes of fresh fruit, vegetables, uh, protein and eggs to families who are facing food insecurity in DeKalb County. CEO Thurman, you and I always have this conversation as we begin to wrap up our conversations of late last year. You, you're a, I'll put this nice, are you an OG of the Georgia politics? <laughs> <laughs> you an OG? <laughs> See, you can you can call me an OG, and it's a it's, it's a badge of honor. Now, not that wouldn't be the case with others, but we got it like that. So you can call me an OG. <laughs> so and you. <laughs> Just so folks know, the very first politician I ever interviewed in this state was Michael Thurman about 20-some years ago. I was just a <laughs> cub reporter, had no idea. I was like, maybe we go talk to the labor commissioner about something. Um, but you and know. I was impressed, and I've been impressed ever since. <laughs> I knew you were going to make, do great things with this career. Well, Fresh out people. of school. Yeah, well, a little bit, a few years. But so, you know, you know, elections year 2022. Yeah. Now that the General Assembly yeah. is, is going to pass this milestone, which is signing die. I had a friend tell me yesterday that she expects this election season now with the campaigning starting to ramp. But she said, Rose, it's going to be ugly. and It's going to be nasty. You've been on that side. Georgia now has been labeled the key state to watch come November just reflect on all of this and where Georgia is now. Because when you were back in the day, folks weren't worried about Georgia, you know, on the national scale. But now it is. Well, that's true. And it's due to the hard work and tens of thousands, millions of people who've gone out and registered and voted and who are out there working the nameless faces, heroes and heroes who did not lose 
faith or grow weary. This is a consequential election and everyone should be totally engaged. I'm excited about it. And, you know, it gets nasty, but it's just politics. You get over it. You know, it's just like being rejected on a date. You get over it. Life goes on. And uh, so that's what politicians understand. Everybody can't win. There'll be winners and losers. But guess what, Rose? Two years from now, four years from now, we get to do it all over again. Were you rejected on a date? Is that why you brought that up? Were you hard? Because you have a lovely wife, so I'm, maybe this conjured up some years before you met your lovely wife and you were rejected yeah, on a date. Yeah, That's why I you brought saved. that up? Yeah. Oh, well, no, I used to say losing a campaign, and I've lost elections, right? Yeah. I lost my first two. I, I've been on the other side of this. It's like asking for a date, being rejected, and then it ends up on the front page of the AJC the next morning. I have no that's idea what, what you're talking beat about. Is like. <laughs> so that's why I bought it up. That's yeah. what being rejected by the voters feel like. But, but it's not private. It's public. Okay. <laughs> uh, what are you doing after this? What's after this? What's after? after this what's after? No, what's after? No, 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 no. What's after being the cap? You know what I'm oh, talking oh, about. Oh. <laughs> I ask you this every I'm time you're on the program. Life. Yeah, what's after the cap county CEO? Are you done? I ask you this well, all the hope, time. Hope, hope, hope. You know, there's only one cure for political ambition, Miss Scott. You know what that is? Love? I don't know. You keep talking about love. What? Formaldehyde. Oh, see, you're throwing that little. <laughs> that's the only thing that's been proven to er eradicate political ambition from a politician. Come on now. But what I'm going to do, and look, I'm in the fourth quarter. Uh, it's two minutes on the clock and my DeKalb County CEO term is, is nearing the end. I got two minutes, but I also got three timeouts. So this might take a while. But, but what, what do you still need to accomplish as DeKalb County CEO that you would like to see? That I want to institutionalize the progress we've made. You mentioned the budget, mm -hmm. the budget I inherited, we had had seven or eight years of structural deficits of some 25 to $30 million. Today, we got $135 million fund balance in the rainy day fund, as an example. So what I want to do with my remaining time is institutionalize the progress we made with the consent decree. Now that we have a consent decree, we got to make sure we never return uh, to the place that we were. And I can go on and on and on, but those are the things with water billing. We want to make sure we continue to give out correct water bill and that you've talked to me about. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you because, you know, you all got that extension, I believe, last year from a federal judge to, to get your, your DeKalb sewer issues together. Yep. How are those issues looking? Oh, much better. Uh, we you say that every time it's looking much better. And then I get 3,000 emails saying Rose is not much better, but, you know. Well, but that's some people, you know, you have that's something called a confirmation bias. A confirmation bias is that if you have an attitude or a belief, no matter what information you receive, you discredit the information because the bias already exists. I can tell you this, oh, two weeks ago, we released 250 new economic development projects in Snapfinger Basin sure. due to the fact of the significant work that's taking place. We've uh, invested over $750 million in the KF Ward and sewer system. Okay, but you can't deny when folks have raw sewage backing up in their yard or their basement. You know that, CEO Thurman. Come on now. Well, first of all, there is no system where that never... Uh, you see a manhole, you notice the manholes uh, uh, do not have covers on them. Sometimes mm -hmm. the big, tall one is designed for that purpose. You'll never have a system that never has a steel. That's, that's, that's not logical. What we want to do is reduce the number of spills. We want to invest in our system. And we still have seven years to go. But I can tell you this, we're not perfect. But anyone who says it's not better than what it was, just not being honest with that, you or that, me. That may be fair. But, you know, for the folks that say, okay, but I, I'm, I'm in this percentage that it would be nice to go out in my yard or my basement and not have sewage back up. You know that. You wouldn't want that. No, absolutely. But we got here because of 30 years of neglect. Sure. One of the things that we have to, and you know, you can't fix 30 years of neglect in five years or 10 years. I won't be here when we complete this consent decree. So when I talk about institutionalizing the progress, let us not return to those days when we should have been making the investment 
that we didn't make that led us to this point. And by the way, one thing I learned, Ms. Rose. What you learned? You know, I don't, I don't, I don't try to do perfect. I just don't. I just try to do the best I can. I'm not perfect. And guess what? If I fixed everything, it wouldn't be nothing for the next CEO to do. But just as a in deference to the next CEO, <laughs> I'm gonna leave some stuff undone. Yeah. And some people upset so they'll have something to put on their agenda. I'm sure the next CEO will appreciate that. <laughs> For right now, DeKalb County's current CEO, Michael Thurman, as always, compelling conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Rose. You know, we appreciate you so much. You do a great job. I've, I've heard that. Thank you. Take care now. Go get some <laughs> lunch. Right. I worry about you not yeah, eating. That, now, that's what I'm going to do next. Get something healthy. Uh, I don't know about that. I'm too Southern. I won't Google it. Closer Look continues from WABE in Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. We know that the year 2020, historic indeed for so many reasons, COVID-19 pandemic is declared. The killing of Ahmaud Arbery, the law enforcement killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Rayshard Brooks sparked protests, not only just here in Atlanta, not only here in the nation, but around the world, while simultaneously pushing for a racial reckoning here. In this country, Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, small businesses all pledged to take action steps to make sure their organizations were equitable for everyone. So then what did we see? Well, we saw companies beginning to launch initiatives to drive DEI, diversity, equity and inclusion. Locally here in February 2021, the Metro Atlanta Chamber, also known as MAC, launched its ATL Action for Racial Equity Initiative. And at that time, I had a conversation with MAC CEO and President Katie Kirkpatrick. She said this about the multi-step and multi-year initiative. When we look in the totality of this initiative, it is largely driven by um, wealth creation in the Black community. Mm-hmm. And that is one thing that didn't, I don't think I touched on is this is a plan specifically built for the Black community, Black businesses, and Black talent. And an important component of that is building wealth and generational wealth for the community. Finally, then, that being the case, how do you all measure? I mean, this is a multi-step, multi-year action plan. Um, of course, obviously, it takes more than a few years. You're talking about building black wealth and generational wealth. But how do you measure these actionable outcomes? How do you measure that you're meeting or, or do you have goals? How do you measure that? No, absolutely. We do. We have um, more than gosh, it's not, it's more than a dozen, it may be even close to 18 or 19, key performance indicators that we have identified. And on an annual basis, we uh, will uh, perform an assessment and give a report to the community on what progress is being made. And and Rose, I am an engineer. Mm -hmm. And so I I think very linear, linear fashion and in a rational fashion. And I believe that if we don't measure, then how do we make progress? And so this was a key component, not only from from my perspective, but also from the business leaders that um, we have to measure, we've got to see where progress is being made. And quite honestly, Rose, if something isn't working, then we need to change course. And it's okay to say that it didn't work. Um, But I think that that honesty um, and transparency with the community will help this initiative be successful. Well, now, it's been a little bit over a year since the launch of that initiative. The Chamber recently announced the results of its inaugural diversity, equity, and inclusion assessment. Join me now to talk all about it. All about that is Michael Baptiste, Metro Atlanta Chamber's Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. Michael, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Rose. Happy to be here. Let's go back to 2020 for a second and where we are now. You know, everyone was so engaged, when I say everyone, it appeared there was this holistic approach and collaborative approach uh, to working through America's racial reckoning or racial awakening and racial reconciliation and all that. And now you look at 2022, just through your personal assessment, um, have we seen some of those efforts 
sort of fade? Or right now, do you think, for most part, entities, folks are still working through, this is what we want to do, and let's assess where we are. Do you think where everyone is in an assessment mode right now? I mean, I, I would say so. I think, as you mentioned, I think 2020 brought on bunches of statements and commitments and, you know, just highlighting what they should be doing, what they're thinking about doing. And as you see over the last couple of years, you know, there's some, there's some companies that have really taken at the heart and saying, you know what, we're going to keep pushing through. We're going to show our commitments and show where, where we stand with those commitments. And we have some that are still trying to figure it out. Um, I think right now we're at the point of just, you know, accountability and saying, okay, if you made a statement, where, where are you today? What, you know, what, what can you show for that? And if, and if, the, if that's the case where you haven't been able to hit those commitments, let's be transparent about that. And what are we doing to, to adjust that or address those things? Um, but I think right now it's just about accountability and being really transparent about what's happening, what you committed to, and kind of how you, you know, are, are holding yourselves accountable for that. Let's give our listeners a little bit of insight about your area, your expertise, your background, um, because you're the ones going to be answering all these questions from little old me. Um, how did you come to be this the person that's sort of charged with with this, with the inaugural diversity, equity and inclusion assessment for the chamber? Yeah, so my background, I'm originally from New Jersey, um, transplant here, so I moved here um, last summer. Um, so my background foundationally is set in recruitment, HR, talent management. Um, and over the last several years, you know, I've kind of done, I've kind of pushed myself around diversity strategy and also leading diversity for various companies and industries. So I worked across industries, you know, nonprofit, tech, um, entertainment, education. Um, but for me, the, the passion always came from, you know, starting out in my career early, not seeing a lot of representation, people that look like me in leadership and wanting to figure out, okay, how can I do something about it? And so that, that kind of drove me in that direction. And in terms of coming here, um, you know, it was more of a personal decision than professional decision. But for me, as most DNI leaders in 2020, I went through that period of just, you know, it, it was a lot to deal with, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, a lot of, lot of burden, a lot of exhaustion, a lot of challenges. So for me, I was looking for that, that new energy around DEI. And so for me, the Chamber's um, A2 Action for Racial Equity Initiative really sparked an interest, a, a new revised energy for me in regards to, okay, how can we do this work and really have it be impactful? Um, and so that's that that, that was that was the, the just for me to kind of come here. I want to want to do this work. Let me ask you this. What do you think entities or folks get wrong about what a DEI initiative or, or a DEI pr- progress is supposed to look like? What do you think folks get wrong about it? So what, what I think people get wrong about it is just the time that it's going to take to actually see measurable results. I think they feel like it's like any other entity within operations or your business that, hey, if we just start doing it, you're going to see immediate you know, change. I think with DEI, it takes time. So right, even right now, you're building a foundational elements for something to happen maybe three, five, 10 years down the line. Um, we, we look at systemic racism or systemic oppression or racial equity. We didn't get here overnight. You're talking about over 400 plus years of, mm-hmm. you know, oppression that we had to deal with. And so I think most companies feel like they can change it in a, in a drop of a diamond and you really can't, but you can make, but you can make small wins and small progresses to kind of add up to the bigger goal. Um, but you got to be patient and really set yourself up to success over time. Well, what does change look like? if someone has implemented these DEI initiatives, and I know it may look differently for each space, but what are some common assessments here that prove that it's working? Yeah, so I I would say the the biggest thing that you could start to see and say, hey, there's some change being made, um, I think is about just representation. Because I think that's that's the main thing where we struggle with is that um, we look at you know, your top companies, this leadership team or CEOs or even board of directors, not, there's not many people of color on those, on those, you know, on those leadership boards. And so mm-hmm. the main thing is companies really being intentional about making that change at the top, because again, that'll allow for us to see, okay, you know what, they actually are putting the money where their mouth is and saying, okay, we're going to make this change by actually doing, seeing the action we can actually see with our own eyes. Um, I think that's that's the thing that you should probably focus on is how do we increase that representation piece? There were four areas, four key areas for the ATL Action for Racial Equity Initiative from the chamber. There was corporate policies, inclusive economic development, education and workforce development. Those make sense. They were so important. So let's take our listeners through one 
What did you all gather? What information did you need? What feedback did you need? How did you first assess this plan before we get to the results? Yeah, so for us, what we wanted to do is really, you know, get a sense of where where are we at from a metro Atlanta region standpoint, um, foundationally, like in terms of what are areas that we're doing well, what are some areas that we need to have improvement upon. Um, and so our goal is to set out to have, you know, survey our companies based on the actions in the playbook. So the playbook lays out very specific actions around what companies they can take around their racial equity journey. Um, and so the questions were directly derived from there to really have us understand, okay, you know, for example, you talk about corporate policies, you know, do you have a DNI leader in place? Does a DNI leader report to the CEO and so forth? And so the goal is just to get a foundational understanding of where we are, because I think that will lead us and kind of guide us down the path of where we want to go. Um, and so we did that last fall, I believe. And then um, we, we worked with the data company, kind of assess kind of what, what the data looks like. And they released the, the report last February this past February that just passed um, to share kind of where, where those results are. And basically what we wanted to do is get an area of where are our strengths and then where are, where are our opportunities of growth and then provide recommendations for the companies to do so. If you just joined us, I am in conversation with Michael Baptiste. He is the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Metro Atlanta Chamber. And this is based on their inaugural diversity, equity, and inclusion assessment. So let's get to it. There's a lot of information here to unpack, but let's start then when we talk about then just this this whole idea of let's be well, let's begin, I guess, with the corporate assessment here. Yeah. So corporate policies, what was interesting to find there is, well, so what was good about it, it was like, it was good. I think we had like 70% of the companies said they have a DNI leader, which was great. Um, on the on the caveat of that, I think only 37% of DNI leaders actually reported to a CEO. Now, why is that important? So when you're in this work from a DI perspective, you want to have that leader in your C-suite or leadership team, you know, role because they have direct access to leadership as well as to the leader. And in most, in some cases, when the DNI leader is reporting to someone else outside the CEO, this creates additional barriers of entry to make things happen. Um, and the last thing you want to have there is just additional extra layers you have to go through in order to actually have initiatives be pushed through. So I want to be so, clear. So, so for corporations, yeah. you're saying they should have someone identified on the in the C-suite level yeah. who yeah. is sort of the DEI, I want to say ambassador leader. or leader. Yep. And, and it should be reporting directly to the CEO because the CEO needs to have that person in their ear um, to, to, to really drive them around what's important for that company, but also to what's important for their employees. How many corporations or businesses said they had that? Uh, do you, do you 37%. It was 37%. Kind of low. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got you to gotta fix that. Yeah. Um, and so basically what, what, what I think what it wound up being is that it 37% actually said they, the, C, the DNI they report the CEO and it, the percentages got lower in regards to, if they, were, if they were important to the CEO, they were important to like the head of HR or somebody in the C-suite. Um, but again, that creates additional layers of work you have to do because now you have to go into that person mm -hmm. then the person above that person and then finally to the CEO. So imagine having to do that constantly when you're pushing forth initiatives to really make impact and influence within your organization. Let's talk about inclusive economic development. What did y'all find? Yes, yeah, so, yeah, so what, what was interesting here, which was good, I think it was 87%, 80% of the companies that took the survey agreed that they have a some type of formal supplier diversity program, which is great. And I believe 46% said that they are um, have partnerships with local organizations to support Black-owned or, or Black-owned businesses and so forth. On the caveat from that, what was interesting is, or a recommendation from us, is the tracking of that supplier diversity program. So mm -hmm. where is that money actually going? Where is that diverse spend actually going? And so um, I think that needs to be key because you may have an organization who's saying, yeah, we, we have a supplier diversity program, but all that diversity spend is diverse spend is probably going to like one company. Mm -hmm. and so it's like, how do you how do you spread that wealth? How do you spread that wealth about? And also too, I think on the black entrepreneurship side, it's really about you know, that access, right? Access to capital, access to networks, access to knowledge. Um, and so having companies really invest in that and buy into that so that way they can really help create more of a, a, a shared ecosystem for Black entrepreneurs to be successful in, in their space. 
I want to move real quickly as we are coming up on time, but education. Yeah. You all said 59% have partnered with a Title I or majority black K-12 through school seeking some type of STEM or STEAM mm-hmm. certification. Yeah, and it, which, which is great. Obviously, that, that, that number can be higher and should be higher. When you think about, you know, our, our, our background here, you know, we, we have a plethora of, you know, Title I schools here that, that need support, that need that, that sponsorship, need that mm-hmm. partnership. And so it's really about also, too, how do we create more opportunities and resources for success for our Black students just so they can be competitive with their counterparts? Because I think that's, that's the gap we're trying to fill here is not just so much, you know, close the education gap itself, but like how do we provide them more resources, more opportunities for success? in their education. And of course, that leads to a better workforce and more diverse workforce development for this region. What did you all find in that area? So for there, what was good, which which I think companies should have, is that from a benefits and kind of overall kind of employee satisfaction standpoint, things are in place, right? Systems are in place, benefits are in place. However, we still have this racial gap issue, racial wealth gap issue with regards to household income. So even though companies have committed to like, hey, we're paying affordable or competitive living wage, there's still a $30,000 difference when you compare black household, black household income to white, white, white household income. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't make sense. Like the math isn't mathing right there. So we have to figure out how do we, how do we solve for that and, and, and really put in a plan in place to make sure that our, house, our households are at least somewhat more equal than they are right now. As we wrap up, Michael, is this assessment and it's also like I liken it to some type of clinical trials where you have to have a very diverse uh, pool of participants. You feel like with this and with the businesses that took the survey and the results that you have, this gives a pretty good and fair snapshot of what still needs to happen and mm-hmm. where things are right now as it relates to this action, this racial equity action plan that you all implemented. Yeah, I mean, this is a start, right? And so for us, like we all know measurement is key right and so for us year over year we want to have this assessment for our companies to say again you know hold them accountable and say what are we doing well what are the things we need to to work on um and i think and also to within the playbooks kpis this gives a measurement tool that they can also just assess themselves on this journey as well to say what are we doing well what are the areas we need to improve upon i know for us like i said we know this is a marathon it's a multi-year multi-effort journey but we still want to have these checking points. I would say every three to five years to say, okay, are, are these still the right focus areas? Are, are we still going in the right direction? Do we need to shift? So it's going to be an ongoing thing. But again, there will be times when we check in and say, okay, here, here are ways that we can make this better or make adjustments where, where needed. You all are providing the, the playbook, but sometimes, as you know, depending on the size of the business or the corporation, whether it's a Fortune 500 based in Atlanta or a very small, it, it, it takes money. So what resources can you all offer since you're you got assessments and you're grading and you know you're getting the results what can you all do to help i think from our standpoint i think i think we're doing it i think it's just providing them the the roadmap and the pathway to get somewhere on their racial equity journey again we're not asking them to do every single action there but we're asking you to do something whatever works best for your organization and so we've laid out the game plan for them and and what we'll also say is mac is also doing this ourselves so we're holding ourselves accountable as part of this racial equity journey as well um, but the, everything is there for them to to, to start down the pathway and, and see progress and and show, show show some action in terms of moving the needle on racial equity so it's all there for them and if they have questions, they can definitely reach out to, to us directly. We can work with them closely on that as well. And we'll have a link to your website for folks to have more information. Metro Atlanta Chamber's Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, Michael Baptiste. And we've been talking about Max ATL Action for Racial Equity Initiative and the results. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Closer Look continues now. Today is a date that forever holds significance, not just for Atlanta, but throughout the world. 54 years ago, on April 4th, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated as he stood on the balcony of the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. Now, one of the few people to see Dr. King before he left Atlanta was Zernona Clayton. She was then working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and was a very close friend to the King family. We're going to revisit a 2011 report I did for WABE News 
as Renona Clayton vividly recalls the day before Dr. King left for Memphis and then that rainy night in Atlanta, April 4, 1968. A few days before April 4, Zenona Clayton was spending time with Dr. King and his family. It was a Sunday afternoon at the house of King's mother, Alberta. There was singing and piano playing, one of those rare personal moments Dr. King had with his family. Later that evening, Zernona Clayton received a phone call from King's mother. She called me after I got home that night. She said, I know you're driving him to the airport tomorrow. And will you tell him, although I'm his mother, and I understand I really would relish just more days like we've had today, meaning how much fun we had. It was just fun afternoon. Clayton would deliver the message to Dr. King. She also told him she would alter his schedule so he could spend more time with his family. In the late afternoon on April 4, 1968, while he was in Memphis, Clayton says Dr. King did something unusual. He called his mother and talked to her almost an hour, about 45 minutes. He just decided to call her. He called his brother and talked to him for an hour. He didn't do that. He did a lot of unusual things that day. That evening, back in Atlanta, Clayton was meeting with the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. She says they were discussing some issues. A note was passed from the maitre d' to Clayton, asking if she had heard the news about King. Clayton says at first she dismissed any notion that something serious had happened. Well, I'd been in his presence three times over the period of time I'd known him when we got a message that somebody had killed him, somebody had gotten to him, you know, and they weren't true. So I just didn't believe that either. After another interruption, Clayton decided to phone Coretta but couldn't get through. She then left and headed to the King home. Upon arriving, she saw Coretta, Atlanta Mayor Ivan Allen Jr., and the police heading out to the airport. Mrs. King and Zernona Clayton had a very close friendship. That rainy night, Coretta asked a favor of Zernona. And she was saying to me, oh, I've been trying to reach you. She said, I've, something has happened to Martin, and I've got to go to Memphis, so look after the children from They had housekeepers and stuff, but she just knew I was very close to the family. And she asked me to, you know, kind of stick with them and see that they'd be okay. Mrs. King never made the trip to Memphis. Clayton says in a private room at the airport, Coretta Scott King was told the news much of the nation was also hearing. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Good evening. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Police have issued an all-points bulletin. Back at the King home, Clayton recalls watching Coretta and one of the King children, Yolanda, as they embraced. We're not going to cry. Yolanda said to her mother, Mommy, you know he wouldn't want us to cry, so we're not going to cry. We're big girls, and I know you loved him a long time because you were married to him a long time. Throughout the night of April 4th, calls from around the world would pour in, including one from President Lyndon Johnson. Around 11.15 p.m., Clayton says Bobby Kennedy called and told Mrs. King nine additional telephone lines would be installed so others could get through. But he also wanted to assure her. Uh, we heard on the news that you planned to go pick up your husband uh, from Memphis and bring him to Atlanta. And we have dispatched an airplane to Atlanta. A private plane is at hangar number four, whatever it was. So whenever you're ready to go, all you need to do is call this number, and the plane is ready to take you. Kennedy even had instructions for Clayton. Miss Clayton, I want you to call every hotel in Atlanta, call the general managers, and put a hold on every room in the city. Don't let any rooms get reserved without going through you because... There'll be so many world leaders coming here. That day, 43 years ago, seemed like a week, says Clayton. She didn't sleep for two days. Clayton would also play a pivotal role in helping Coretta prepare for Dr. King's funeral. Decades later, Clayton reflects on her friendship with Coretta Scott King in April 4, 1968. And she told somebody that, um, you know, I was pretty important, but I never felt uh, I was ever beyond meeting her needs and whatever they were, you know. Uh, but that's what friends do, real friends.
And this is gospel legend Mahalia Jackson singing Take My Hand, Precious Lord, at the funeral of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. Our producers are Janine Etter, LaShawn Hudson, and Daniel Razel. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. A reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. You can always send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's program, it's always online, wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 And we have a podcast, so subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.